if Steve thinks that Mark is 40, I don't ever want a birthday on Sunday. I never do. And, and if it's my birthday and you see Steve coming up on stage, front row, tackle him. Don't let him up here. I don't want to hear how old he thinks that I am. But um, is, Mark, is Mark around? Mark's someplace because he's coming back up here. Uh, that's okay. He'll, Mark, Mark, pay back for Steve. There was this announcement Steve just made. Did you guys hear this? Women come worship on this Wednesday night, and there's this great talk, and it's all about, about learning about our identity and our role as women. Did you hear Steve say that? I, I have known Steve for 20-plus years, and until this morning, I can't remember. I honestly cannot remember the last mistake he made. And some people were not here to hear it, so next Sunday, I'll repeat that. And some won't yet be here, because some come once a month. I'll repeat it again. And again. Some only come on Easter, so on Easter, I'll, I'll tell the story again. It is, it is so good to be together as a church. Some of us uh, have been here a long time, and we know each other well. Some of you are here for the very first time. Some of you maybe are checking out the church. Maybe some of you are visiting for a single time. If you are, I hope you feel the presence of God. I hope you feel part of this. It's so good to be here. I mentioned this once not too long ago. We've had a run, at least in, in my world of family and friends and extended acquaintances, we've had a run of difficulty and struggle that I cannot remember in my lifetime. It's this perfect storm. It, it seems it started about, about the time school started. And this very week, it's, it's been unabated to this very week, this very week, dear, dear friend of mine and his family, there's, there's um, horrific injury uh, that's going to go on for a long, long time. And others, there's illnesses above and beyond the stuff that you get over that's going on. This very week, a dear, dear friend lost a loved family member way too young, totally unexpected, and buried this individual. This very week, three of my dear, dear friends are, are watching one of their parents quickly fade into history and heaven one day. And doctors say it could be any time. I met a man this very week who has just lost his job, now looking for a source of income this very week. I have met parents this week that have wayward children. I've met children this week that have wayward parents. I've met those in relationships that are struggling. It's been this perfect storm. And so I know among you, there are a number of you that you're going through a deep, deep struggle now. You're going through a hard struggle now. My heart goes out to you. Some of you are not. And the only thing that I could give you a a prequel on about the message is that Jesus says you will someday. And thank God if this is a run without deep struggle. But he says you won't make it the whole run without struggle. You'll have struggle someday. So our topic, our series we're on, Where is God Today, has been so pertinent for what we're going through now. Where is God Today? There are two anchor passages of the entire series. I've suggested you would do well to memorize those, to learn those. They, they could be key to you making it through life well. And so I want to put the first one up on screen and have you read it with me. It's Colossians 1.15. It's key. So if you would read with me, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Okay, he's the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, if you have seen Jesus or if you see Jesus, then you will have seen exactly what God the Father looks like. In fact, Jesus would at one point say, if you have seen me, you've seen God the Father. And so if you're ever wondering what God looks like or what God does or where God is today, you just look at Jesus and see where Jesus is today and what he's doing, what he's like. 
The second passage ties to that. It's Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8, if you would read with me, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he's not evolving. <laughs> he's not developing. The way we find him today is exactly as he was eternity past. The way we find him today is just as he was 2,000 years ago, the way he will be 2,000 years from now into eternity future. So, so here's the connect for us. Where is, God, where is God today? We just have to look at Jesus 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is the same today as he was then. We have to look at what he was doing 2,000 years ago, and we'll see what he's doing today. So we're studying the Gospel of John. Today we're on chapter 16. It may help to follow along. If you picked up a Bible in the back, it's on page 824, John 16. I want to start with the first four verses. The setting is, this is the Thursday night of which Jesus will be arrested. He'll be crucified the very next day. He has his closest followers, the disciples, with him. And we're, we're stepping into today, stepping into the middle of a conversation he's having with them. We've covered the conversation the last three weeks. We're now into the middle of it. Chapter 16, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 1, he says this, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. And by the way, part of what he's just told them has been, he said that I have been and I will be persecuted. And you will be too. He's saying, what, what you see happening to me that has happened, will happen, is going to happen to you as well. There's going to be this persecution. And he's already told them that he's going to be crucified and the time is now. He's already told them that. So he's saying, I've told you these things so you won't abandon your faith. You won't be caught off guard. You won't have this unrealistic, unreal expectation that if, if you follow me, life is going to be easy and sweet, no problems. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. He goes on, verse 2. For you will be, now this is new information, you'll be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service to God. This is because they've never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a little while longer. New information, he's saying to them, you need to be prepared for this. The time's going to come when you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. By the way, the synagogue to them, that was their church. That was their place of worship. There's some of you here that you've been part of this particular church for a long time. And this is, this is the heartbeat of your worship. And for them to hear those words, it would be as though someone coming to you and saying, you're kicked out. This has been the central place of worship. You can't worship here anymore. You are simply kicked out. But it would mean more than that to them. The synagogue, it was the, it was the hub of their entire culture and relationships. It would mean they would become outcasts to the entire community. They would be ostracized. If they had a business, likely no one would do business with them any longer. If they wanted to go make purchases from a business person, likely they wouldn't be allowed to. They'd be ostracized. They would be disowned in, in all likelihood by their families. And I'm reading this this week, and I'm reflecting on the run that I have watched and partially experienced the last six months. And I'm thinking the struggles that we have had, they are nothing compared to this. That to be uh, kicked from the synagogue and the culture and everything they have known, to be disowned by their family. And then he says, and then he says, he just kind of throws it in, when the ones that kill you do it. Did you catch that? He's saying, you're going to be executed. You will be executed. I'm thinking, we have, we have none of the struggles such as they have. 
but I was talking to one of my closest friends yesterday who just read this book, Killing Christians. And this friend was reflecting what he was reading, and I was thinking through it, and it's true. There are Christians on the planet today that are experiencing exactly what Jesus said the apostles would experience, exactly. Completely ostracized, completely disowned, and being killed. Our, our struggles, our struggles are serious. I, I would never diminish them, but we don't begin to face what they were facing. And so they had these struggles, and so they may have been asking the question, well, where are you in this? All, all you have, it seems, is this horrible future for us. Where are you in this? Where, 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 where is God in this? So if we ask the question, where was God 2,000 years ago? This is a summary of where we're going. I'll unpack this. But in essence, the answer to that question is, is that he was pointing beyond the struggle to his promises. He's saying, you're, you're in struggle now. It's going to get a lot worse. And he was pointing beyond the struggle to his promises. Okay? And so he gives them these three promises. And, and they could sound like very insufficient, but they prove not to be. The first one is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's already promised this a couple of times in the previous chapters in this conversation. He comes back to it again in verse 6. I'll pick up there. He says, you grieve because of what I've told you, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So he's saying the Spirit's going to convict the world. Now pick up in, down in 13. Then he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He, sa- he begins this by making a statement that seems so stunningly unreal, it seems. They've been with him for three years. God, the Son, with skin on. They can hear him speak. They can, they can touch his skin. They've watched him do physical miracles. They have all that. And he's saying, guys, it's going to be so much better that I don't hang around. It's going to be so much better that I'm gone. Why? Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And you don't get it now, but you're going to discover with the Holy Spirit, it's so much better than having me with skin on. It's going to be so much better. The Holy Spirit, he says, is going to convict the whole world of sin, which he says the whole center of sin the whole center of it, the whole um, axis of it is this, is not believing in me. I, I thought about that, and I see how true that is. If, if the Holy Spirit grabs someone and says, you're missing the central truth of life, is Jesus is God the Son. He died for all of your sins. He rose from the dead. If you ask him to forgive you and lead you, he'll forgive every sin you have. He'll lead you into a new life. If, if we get that one right, everything else begins to fall in place. We get that one right. That's good news. If you find yourself uh, in a ditch that's filled with sewage and, and someone points it out to you, you hadn't realized it, and all of a sudden you realize how much it smells and how ugly it is, isn't that good news to have someone point that out? He's saying, guys, this is good news. And so... These 12 had been with Jesus with skin on for three years, and they were still a rotten mess. After three years with Jesus with skin on, seven weeks later, Acts 2 records it, seven weeks later, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to live in them, and they are dramatically changed. And the way they act and live out their life is totally different. Jesus said, you're going to be so much better off if I stayed with skin on. No, no, you would miss out on this greater gift I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world and you and, and lead you into all truth. And um, so I, I could go on and on about the Holy Spirit, but April 10th, we'll begin a whole series on the Holy Spirit. April 10th, begin a whole series on that. He's, he's pointing beyond the struggle to the promise of the Holy Spirit. The second promise he gives them here is the promise of resurrection. In verse 16, he touches on this. He says, in a little while, you won't see me again. But a little while after that, you will see me again. And then down in 20, he picks up again and continues on. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what's going to happen to me. But the world will, re- will rejoice. It's what happened the very next day. And the disciples are weeping and mourning. And Jerusalem is celebrating Jesus is dead now. But then he goes on from that. And he says, you will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It'll be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she's brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. No one can take that joy away. This is Thursday night. And they're already afraid and mourning what's about to happen and Jesus is crucified on Friday and they're weeping and and running to an upper room in deep fear on on Friday but Sunday comes it's the first Easter and in John chapter 20 verse 20 John picks it up and says they're they are cowering in this upper room in Jerusalem they are fearful for their lives and suddenly Jesus with skin on shows up they had seen him dead cold and dead and buried and he shows up in the room And in verse 20, John records this. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. He promised them. He pointed beyond the struggle to his promise of resurrection. He said, when you see me, you will have joy, and no one can steal it from you. But then I thought about all the struggles that they would face and all the persecution and the executions and everything that would happen. So I I took myself to... Some of the other scripture that the Apostle John wrote. Uh, the Apostle John actually wrote four books with his name on it. He wrote a fifth book titled Revelation, but the four books are the Gospel of John that we're in. But he also wrote 1 John, which is a letter, 2 John, a letter, 3 John, a letter. And so, so he writes 1 John, this letter, about 60 years after this event happened, this Thursday night and Friday, about 60 years later. And he's looking back in the 60 years, as Jesus said, every other apostle has been executed by now. And the very first one executed was John's own brother, James. Acts chapter 12, read about it. Every single one of his running mates executed, just like Jesus said. And John himself had been horrifically tortured, but he's still breathing. So he begins to pin this letter to people, and he's saying, we got to tell you, we got to tell you about this Jesus, and I saw him. I ate food with him. I, you, I touched his skin. I got to tell you about him. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, We're writing these things so you may fully share our joy. Man, Jesus said, let me point you beyond the current struggles of that night of the arrest and the crucifixion to come because I'm going to be raised from the dead and you'll see me and your joy will never be stolen. 60 years later of brutality, the joy was not stolen. Pointing them beyond the struggle to his promises. And then he gives a third promise. It's, that promise is asking in Jesus' name. Asking in Jesus' name. 
He speaks of this in verse 23. At that time, meaning the resurrection, at that time of the resurrection, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth. You'll ask the Father directly, and he will grant you your request because you use my name. Some translations say you ask in my name. You just ask in my name. He'll give you anything you ask. You haven't done this before. Using my name or asking in my name, you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. He said, ask anything in my name. This is really important to understand. In our time, my name, it just means you call me Rick. That's, what my, that's all my name means. In their time, the name meant a whole lot more than that. The name meant my name is Rick, or, but it represents my character and my will for life. It represents all that I am. And so when he says, if you pray and you ask in my name or you ask with my name, He's saying, if you ask in line with my character and in line with my will, God will give it to you. God will give you anything you ask in line with my character and my will. Just ask and he will give it to you. So I begin to look at at Acts and to see what they're asking for. And the Holy Spirit comes and begins to live in them. They get this great boldness and they begin to tell people about Jesus in Jerusalem. And the power structure is the same one that just seven weeks before had executed Jesus, and they know the risk of that, so they, they are arrested, no surprise. They're taken in, and they're told never to speak of Jesus again, and, and then they're threatened. It's not an empty threat. Seven short weeks before they had executed Jesus, not an empty threat, they're threatened. And so in Acts 4, verse 29 to 31, it records what they asked for, okay? There's this very real threat. This is their prayer. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Are you serious? What would you have asked for? You know what I would have asked for? Protect us. Don't let us get beat up and flogged and killed. Protect us. And that's not a bad ask. I've asked many times, probably even this morning, I've, I've prayed for protection. Not a bad thing to do. They don't ask for that. Maybe, maybe because... Seven weeks before, on a Thursday night, Jesus said, hey, guys, you just need to be aware. You're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be expelled, and you're going to be executed. All that's going to happen. Maybe they thought, you know, okay, it's going to happen. Why ask? So what do they ask for? They ask for something in the very center of Jesus' name, the center of his will. Give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. We don't know what's going to happen. We're going to get persecuted and eventually killed, but just give us boldness. And then he, and the second ask, stretch out your hand with healing power. And then the next phrase captures the healing power and even more. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they're asking for miracles. After this prayer, the meeting place shook. What would you think if that happened this morning? They were, they were certain it was God's smile shaking the building saying, I love what you asked for. I love what you asked for. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached the word of God with boldness. So so they've asked for boldness to preach. It says they they continue to preach with boldness. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Their second ask in Jesus' name was healing power or miraculous signs and wonders. That sums it up, right? Do the supernatural among us. And they would eventually see... They would see a day come when an angel would show up and would open a locked prison door and let some of them free. And they would see many days when when, uh, sick and injured people would be miraculously healed. And they would see days when the dead would be risen to life again. They would see all that. But do you know what verse follows this? 
Like it's the biggest miracle of all. The verse that follows this says, and all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. You know how we are made in our brokenness, don't you? In our brokenness, I have to be sure I look after me. I have to take care of myself. And if I can save up enough and have enough stashed away for, for a bad time, an extended bad time, and more bad time, if there's anything left, maybe I'll help you out. In our brokenness, that's how we're wired, right? I'm number one, you're number two or three or somewhere down the list. In our brokenness, that's how we're wired. That's how they had always been wired. But just a short while before this, many of them began to trust Jesus And the Holy Spirit began to live inside of them, and all of that changed. And it says, they were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned wasn't even their own. So they shared everything they had. I saw this happen. Actually, I didn't see, I heard about this happen this week again. There's someone with uh, horrific circumstances that are going to run for a long time and the Spirit prompted someone in this church, it wasn't a pastor or staff, prompted someone to view what they had, not as their own, but to, but to help. And that this person told someone else and someone else, and by the time they actually uh, asked this person just to sit down and meet, uh, there, were, there were dozens of people that had gathered. And they had pooled their resources, and it was, some, it was this enormous sum of money and notes of love and provisions, just this stunning amount. And I found myself thinking, um, this is what Jesus said would happen with his spirit. This is what happened back there. They said, do, do a miracle among us. This was a miracle. And it's not the only time it's happened here because about two weeks before, a whole different set of people, a whole different set of problems, something just like that happened two weeks before that as well. And the month before that, the month before that. And let me ask you this. If you were God and you, you knew the humanity that you had made, which would be the bigger miracle? Would it be for someone who has cancer to reach into their body and kill the cancer cells? Or would it be to change their heart where they consider what, what they have is not their own, but it, it belongs to whoever needs it? The, the cancer's got to be an easier deal. Why? One, the person wants to be rid of cancer, Right? But even if they don't, how can they stop God from killing the cancer cells? They can't, right? But to take a human heart and make it like the heart of Jesus, it's the ultimate miracle. It's the ultimate miracle. They, they prayed in Jesus' name, would you do miracles among us? And they saw all the others, the healing, the raising the dead. The biggest one, I believe, is, is that they, they became focused on others and poured their life and love out for others. So, so they prayed in Jesus' name, and Jesus had said back in John 16, he said, after the resurrection, you pray in my name, God's going to give anything you ask for. And he says, when that begins to happen, you're going to be so filled with joy. And so I kept reading, because I know what happened next. They go out and they tell about Jesus in Jerusalem again, and the power structure is the same one. They get arrested, and it actually looks like for a little while sitting there, it looks like that that will be their execution day. The power structure, actually, they decided we will kill all of them right now. Acts 5. Okay, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts now, but it looked like there would only be five chapters because they were all going to die on that day. And then God just stops that and turns the tables. They don't die that day. So all that happens is they get flogged. In other words, all that happens is someone you know, rips the robe off so they have bare backs and takes a whip and whips them until their backs are lacerated and, and bleeding and bruised. That's all that happens. Huh. 
That's all that happens. <laughs> I mean, I've never had that happen. Um, I've got a couple of criticisms. That's been about it. I've never had this happen. If I did, I'm not sure how I would respond, but it probably wasn't like this. Acts 5, 41, 42. And the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. See why they got executed? <laughs> Their prayer was, just make us bold so we won't stop. And they never stopped. They never stopped. Some of you are probably thinking, I, I know, I know you because you guys are smart. You're smarter than the average bear. So you're thinking, well, <laughs> if, if it's asking according to Jesus' character and will, why ask anyway? He's just going to do it, right? So why do I ask? And, and James answers part of this in James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And, and part of that is there's, there's some things that God would like to do. They're in line with his, his character is what he'd like to do. But he just wants you to want it and ask him, and he'll do it. And you don't know what those things are. I wonder how many times in my life I just never asked, and God was ready and willing and wanting, and it just never happened. James is saying, you don't have because you don't ask. And then he goes on and says, and sometimes even when you ask, it's selfish, and so you're not going to get that stuff. Yeah, but, but you don't have because you don't ask. So this third promise, Jesus says, when you ask in my name, in my name, God's going to give you everything you ask for. And then the chapter concludes with verse 33. Jesus says, here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. He's saying you will have many, many troubles and sorrows. And so he's saying, don't be caught off guard. Don't have this crazy idea that because you follow me, it's going to be easy path, no, no struggles. You'll have struggles. So, so where is God today? Especially those of you in struggles, where is God today? It's the same place he was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he was pointing beyond the struggle to his promises. Where is he today? Today, he's pointing beyond the struggles in your life to his promises. This, this is very important. Psalm 146.6, this is profound. It says, he keeps every promise forever. God keeps every promise, not most of them, every promise forever. Not for a long time, forever. Every single thing God has promised, he keeps those promises. He keeps them forever. And so I found myself wondering and asking the question, do you know the promises of God? Do you know the promises of God? Because, because in the struggle that some of you are in, that may be the one thing you need to get through this struggle well. And if you're not in the struggle now, Jesus says you will be. Just wait, you will be. And, and his promises could well be the one thing you need to get through that. Do you know his promise as well? Some of you are studying Scripture consistently right now, and my recommendation to you would be to continue studying right where you are. Just look for the promises that are there. And the ones that you find that seem especially important, then you might begin to make a list. Some of the promises that God's made. Just as you study Scripture, just look for the promises of God. I back... I was a pretty new follower of Jesus, and I forget if it was six months or two years, but I've got an, an old binder on my shelf, and I was studying Scripture, and somewhere along the way, I realized I ought to write some of these things down. 
These sound really important. I think I might need to remember this promise someday. So I just started a list. And and if you're reading the Bible, um, you might want to start a list. At the same time, I bought, I found at a Christian bookstore, a small uh, Bible promise book. And I bought one. And it helped me because there were certain struggles that were identified and categorized and promises were listed. But I would say this, it helped me. But I would say never buy that as a substitute for reading all of God's word. God has so much more than his promises. If we read all of his word, we get the promises in context and everything. If all we needed was his promises, the Bible would be this thick. It'd be God's Bible promises, okay? He gave us the whole thing. So don't use that as a substitute. Some of you are not consistently studying the Bible. Here's my recommendation. Um, Take Romans chapter 8 this week. Bob Boone has been a priceless friend of Marie's and mine for 20 plus years. And uh, Bob isn't at this service, I don't think, so I can say this because he wouldn't want me to if he were here. But when Bob Boone talks, I listen. And most other people do as well. I listen. And several years back, Bob began to read Romans 8, and he was so captured by the profound truths in it that he studied it. Actually, he studied it for two years. And during the two years, he studied some other things in Scripture too. But he began over that two-year run to memorize it, first just line by line, and verse by verse, and section by section. He said the memorization took two full years, but he took two full years and he memorized it. And, and he said, he described this to me. He said that he hiked the mountains in Summit County, Colorado for years and years. He would get a map and get a, you know, hiking provisions and he would go off hiking and he saw some beautiful sights and beautiful scenery. But he said it wasn't until he actually got to the 12,000 foot peak above the tree line and looked down he actually could see the full breadth of the beauty and see how all of the beauty fit together, how all the trails fit together. And he said, that's what happened with him with Romans 8. So with Romans 8, when he began to really let that soak into his knowledge and emotions and actions, he said, it's as though all of the rest of Scripture came into place for me then. And he says to this day, he says, I think Romans 8 is the crown jewel of all Scripture in, in his view, in his view. And I happened to call him again this week because I was thinking of the promises in in Romans 8. Could I give you three or four of them just as a sample? Because my recommendation is if you're not reading something in Scripture, read Romans 8 and and look for some of the promises. I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights, three or four highlights. Very first verse. So now, now he's, he's talking to people who have trusted Jesus. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. He's saying for everyone who has surrendered their life to Jesus, they are totally innocent. God has declared them totally innocent. And, and I know what it's like to follow Jesus and then to sin again and think, man, I'm just, I am filth. And, or Satan to remind me of some old sins. I know what that's like, and that's a lie. And, and he's saying here, here's the promise. You trust me, I have wiped every, every, every sin away. Some of you in this room, you've been following Jesus for seven days. And, and there's an enemy who is trying to say, you've got to ask forgiveness again. You've got to get better. And there's this promise, every single stinking sin forgiven forever. And in some struggle, you might need that promise. Second verse says this. It says, and because you belong to him, The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
then the Holy Spirit begins to live in you instantly. And the Holy Spirit has such power that now lives within you because the Spirit lives within you that you can, in following the Spirit, you can progressively leave your sins in the dust. Even the worst ones, even the most tenacious ones. You say, over the course of time, day by day, week by week, year by year, over the course of time, with the Spirit's help, then here's, this is really a powerful promise. Think, think of the sin that's been hardest to put in your past and not repeat again. This promise is the Holy Spirit has the power, will guide you along a path that will help you get to the point where that becomes, someday, someday that will become history for you. Powerful, powerful, hope-filled promise of God. Can I give you a couple more? I'm skipping a ton of them, but verse 15, I want to cover this because it dawned on me this morning that we were singing the song this is based upon. Um, in verse 15, it says, You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Okay, You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, but you have God's spirit. You are children of God. We just sang that song, didn't we? Man, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Why? I'm a, I'm a child of God. Man, I'm a child of God. This powerful, powerful promise of God. It is, the, it is reality God has promised that. I'll give you one, one last one. There's so many in here. Toward the end, verse 38. It says, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And then he hits this litany of things, uh, death and demons and um, worries and on and on. Even hell itself can't keep us from God's love. We can never, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Somewhere in the middle of the night, Friday, I felt God's, uh, I woke up and felt God's prompting to get up and go get my cell phone and check my text and email. And there was a like a middle-of-the-night message that came from, from Bob McCarty, dear, dear friend of mine. And I knew he was uh, out of town with his dad, who is in his last days. And the message was, I, I'm, I'm here with my dad, and I'm watching his life fade away. Hey, he loves his dad so much. One of the worst struggles of his life to be there and watch his dad fade. But the note goes on, and he ends with this. He says, but I know my dad is moments or hours or days away from seeing Jesus face to face. Where is God in the struggle? He's pointing beyond the struggle through his promises, and it will make all of the difference. We're going to conclude as part of the message itself, something a little bit different. All of the promises of, of God are only possible because of that time 2,000 years ago when Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. All of the promises only became activated because Jesus was willing to die for our sins and then he rose from the dead. And on that Thursday night that we've been reading about, on that very Thursday night, he instituted this event that he challenged all Christ followers of all time in everyone's run on earth to celebrate. And on that very first night, on that very first night, this is what he did. He had his disciples there with him, and he took this loaf of bread. He gave thanks to his father, and he broke that bread 
And as he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat this. Take it in, consume it. And then he took the blood red cup and gave thanks to his father and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins for you and for many. Take and drink this in remembrance of me. In a few moments, you're going to have the chance to come down. And as you do, I would encourage you to watch because a server is going to break off a piece of bread. And when that server does, remember it represents Jesus' body. There was a day his body broke for you out of love. And then you'll take that piece of bread and you'll dip it into this blood-red cup. As you do remember, there was a day his blood was shed out of love for you. Remember, it was that day and the resurrection that followed on Sunday that made every single promise of God possible. And so as when time comes for you to come, uh, have that in mind. And let it be this massive celebration. And then I would urge you to whisper a little prayer to Jesus and say, I'm, I'm not going to waste the impact the promises could have upon me. I'm not going to live as one who doesn't know and believe the promises. I'm going to live as one who knows and believes them, and it will change everything, especially in the struggle. It would change everything. After I pray, you'll be welcome to come. If you're on the floor seating, it works easier if you will go to your left and come down the nearest aisle and then go back to the right. There'll be servers in this front section all across the front. If you were in the risers or the very back seating on the floor, there'll be servers in the back. There are a number of folks here who they, they are so ready to celebrate. They need gluten-free. So the farthest servers on both ends at the front are gluten-free. And so, so come and soak in what Jesus has done and then say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know, I'm going to believe those promises that were activated by your death and resurrection. Father in heaven, may you leverage this in our hearts and souls. May we, may we go back 2,000 years and and see the picture of love. And then that may, spur, may that spur us on to not take lightly what you've written for us, all that you've written. This morning we've talked about the promises. May we, may we not ignore that they are there. May we, for a lifetime, seek to learn them, believe them, and live in that truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.